a living temple, alive with Christ as living stones, we become the very dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of the living God. BC Resources, available from bcresources.net, are the teaching materials of North Clackamas Bible Community, a church located in Happy Valley, Oregon. Mike Spiro, Senior Pastor of North Clackamas Bible Community, delivered this message from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8, through 8, on Sunday, July 28, 2019. The Apostle Peter is using the metaphor of the living temple to remind the believing of the nature of the church and its twofold call. First, to come to Jesus Christ as to a living stone. Second, to surrender to his building you, not rejecting him, but drawing near to him by the Bible, cooperating in being fitted into a particular local church. So this is kind of special. Kevin in the audience is like bizarre. Like, that's crazy. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so are we set up? Are we set up for uh, uh, communion? We are. So we can have that after. Mm -hmm. All right, you guys ready? Let's go. Can I be good? <laughs> Father, we thank you so much for this special morning and for the clear fact that your faithfulness is so very true and your love so very steadfast. This is the passage you put on my heart. Open up every heart to hear what the Spirit has to say to this church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Kevin was thinking ahead, and so you have a handout of 1 Peter 2. We will be looking at verses 4 through 8. When we're looking at 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8, it's located at the end of the first part of the epistle. And wherever there's summaries, you have to recognize that they're emphatic in some sense. So he's wrapping up the first part of 1 Peter right here. So what he says in summary is going to be critical to what he wants to leave with them about the nature of the church. 1 Peter itself, I think you all remember, was written to strengthen the disciples in North Asia Minor, in place of Paul, the Gentiles there, to strengthen them, their sense of identity as the people of God so that they could undergo the persecution they were facing with a sense of dignity. So that establishes the context for us. If you remember 1 Peter, there was nothing about people being imprisoned. And we have, of course, a letter from Pliny to Trajan at the beginning of the 2nd century AD, where it revealed that there was an 
tremendous amount of social hostility and harassment directed against the Christian churches, mostly from made-up kinds of things. So 1 Peter is a book about suffering and how to strengthen our identity as God's people so that we might endure this harassment with dignity. For a beginning, because you want to establish somewhat of a context, remember in chapter 2 here, you have the metaphor of a living temple. Not a material house, but a living temple. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, through chapter 2, verse 3, it talks about the fundamental practices that mark a living church. So in 122, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So you have agape in Philadelphia. Agape, the love of initiative, the divine love, and brotherly love is the goal. Brotherly love is very devoted, very familiar, very loyal, very committed to one another. This is the plan for God's church to have a community that close-knit. And it gets to that place by how it drinks in the word of God. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which is preached to you by the apostles. So it's a very clearly identified word, that which came from Christ through the apostles, his designated and appointed representatives. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, which is the reason for ongoing reproof because these are the anti-loves that get in the way of us becoming those kind of people. Like newborn babies, he's not saying you're spiritual babies, but like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So that's pretty clear. Obedience to the truth, desiring the word, dealing with the anti-loves, and becoming very, very tight. Any other pattern of a church, any other idea of a church misses the mark. So that's the context as we come into verse 4, one of the most significant passages in the New Testament on the nature of the church. You remember the other figures, the bride and the bridegroom, the vine and the branches, the good shepherd and the sheep. There's a number of figures of the church in the New Testament. This one is Peter's favorite, the cornerstone and the temple. So that's where we find ourselves. And coming to him is to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then six through eight is his biblical or scriptural support. In verse four and five here, we have fundamentally the call to the church and that call is gonna be twofold. Coming to him, as a living stone, and those stones being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see that twofold? So when you're getting down to, to what is the fundamentals of a living church, primarily we have to be in the process of coming to him as a living stone, not just anybody, but as a living stone. And when we come to him, then we become built up into a building. So that's the essentials of Christian commitment in a church. It's not enough just to come to Christ. You have to surrender to his building you into the particular church that you happen to be a part of. If you don't think you're in the proper church, then you should go somewhere else because God is interested in building us together. All of this should sound very familiar to everybody. This shouldn't sound like strange teaching. I hope it doesn't. But you see how clear the scripture is? So here in 4 and 5, we have this call. And the first aspect of what I said is in verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Coming to him as to a living stone. If you have the original language with you, you'll notice pros home is at the beginning of the clause. To him, so it's very emphatic. As living stones, us coming to him, Christ as Christians, sets us apart from every other faith community. You understand what the world is doing to us today, what they're trying to do. They're trying to put us into the group of faith communities. All the similarities that we have and what we can contribute and do in their mind, which would be right for the culture. Just remember, we're not one other faith community. We're a Christian community marked by coming to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as the head of the church. That's different from any other faith community. So let's keep that in mind. Now, when he's saying coming to him, prosercomine, right? That's pretty clear, but there's that pros again. I know you're familiar with it, to draw near with the intent of staying. Not just drawing near, but drawing near with the intent of staying permanently. We get the word proselyte from this word, which means one who has fully changed his allegiance from one thing to another. So it's a permanent commitment coming to him. And you can see the fact that it's a present participle, that this is an ongoing encouragement ongoing, coming to him constantly. This should mark our lives every day. Now, it's, it's very, very clear. It's not just coming to him in a spiritual sense. In my mind, I'm coming to him because I'm looking at the trees and I'm saying, God, I know you're here. It's very tangible. Coming to him means coming to his word, the Bible, not some other thing you make up with the word, the Bible as the apostles wrote it. That's the tradition. So it's very clear when we come to him open, it's to receive the teaching of scripture. Keep coming, a living stone. It's a living stone, it's not a gravestone. It's not a tombstone. We don't gather together to mourn the death of Jesus Christ. 
and somehow with sentimentality think back on how brutal he was killed and then feel bad about who we are. It's a living stone. Now this is critical because many people in their minds think they come to Christ, but they don't come to him as a living stone. Not a gravestone, but the resurrected Christ, the one who's at the right hand of the Father, the chief being in the cosmos, the head of the church, the living Christ who not only died but was raised from the dead and serves as head of the church from the right hand of the Father. That's our Lord. That's our focus. We come to him as to a living stone. If we don't come to him as Lord, we're not coming to him. If we're not coming to him in a personal way, we're not coming to him. So there's a lot of talk today. You can accept Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord and somehow get into having free card. You must accept him as Lord if you accept him as Savior. Because if he wasn't Lord, he wouldn't be an effective Savior. Coming to him as to a living stone. Now notice it's lithos, not petros. So here he's really talking about a building stone rather than some natural rock. And so we, when we come to Christ, we're transformed into a building stone shaped originally to fit into the particular church that God is going to work us in. So we're in position to be fitted without knowing Christ. We're not in any position to be fitted. So this coming to him is to a living stone in verse 4. In Balls, I think it's very clear from the passage, a clear and deliberate focus toward him from where we draw our life. Clear, conscious, and deliberate choice. So I think everyone understands, you sit back, you know, whenever you're wrestling, the last thing you want to be doing is thinking clearly and deliberately. <laughs> so you come up with all kinds of excuses about, you know, I'm trying to feel where I'm supposed to go. Someone tries to discuss with you and you look like you're out of your mind. <laughs> so a clear and deliberate focus, can you do that? That involves a choice. Can you do that? We draw life from the head of the church. Christ is the only head of the church. And remember the other figures I mentioned? Remember the vine and the branches? Unless the branches feed off the vine, they die. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch in me that bears fruit, connected to the vine, he prunes it so that it may bring forth more fruit. I hate to say that, but he says every branch that's not connected, he takes away. People are moved away when they're not walking with Christ. Expect that. There are branches that are taken away. That's a fact of life. It's like in a vineyard. If you've ever been to a vineyard, uh, right after they trim the vines, you will say they're dead but they do it every year, then new growth grows, and by the time it gets to bear great fruit, you're reminded, we will sell no wine before it's time. So pruning in our church is a very normal process that God speaks to us about, and God will not sell his wine before it's time. But when we're there, it will be fulfilling. 
fruitful and enjoyable instead of a clanging symbol. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Rejected by men. Now this is a fascinating word because you have the preposition a po and then you have a po later on connected to the verb. So this is the stress of rejection, putting off away from. The word generally implies not just a rejection for no reason. You've actually put something to the test and thoroughly examined it. It's found to pass the test but you still reject it. Does that make sense? It's not like, oh, oh, I reject this because I just don't see what value there is into it. Like with the Lord, their rejection, and this makes the rejection extremely personal. That's why it's personal with us. It's extremely personal. They rejected Christ, not because they were unsure about his being the Messiah, but because he was not what they wanted him to be or even expected. They knew he was the Messiah. They examined him and put him to the test and he passed all the tests. They just didn't like who he was. He wasn't what they wanted him to be. That's a fundamental struggle people go through, isn't it? In their relationship with God. I want you to, you grow up in the church and you get an idea that Christ is there. You're a good person, but he's there to make you happier in life and to make everything move smoothly. Then when you come in contact with Christ and he calls for your entire life, you get offended. I don't want that kind of God. I want the God like the pagans have, who I can like appeal and they can make things better for me, that I might prosper, that everything might work out well. But I don't want this God that calls on my life. I want to build me into a congregation where I lose my old life and find something much more wonderful. Rejected, rejected by men, but choice and pressures in the sight of God. You remember when the religious leaders rejected Christ after knowing exactly who he was, that's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Everybody's favorite sin. No, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the one sin you can't forget because the person doesn't want to be forgiven. It's determined unbelief. And look at that last phrase in four. He who is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now you can see the phrase there, and part of the preposition is at the beginning. In the sight, of course, means alongside the Father, always in the view of the Father, who's God. And the Father looks at the Son as choice and precious as he is alongside him. Choice and precious. Choice, something chosen with extreme care. Precious, one highly cherished and dearly beloved. And the word there is of the greatest value. People wonder why Christ 
sacrifice was so encompassing because here you have one life of eternal value. There's nothing his sacrifice can't cover in the eyes of the Father. So if he's choice and precious in the sight of God, and he was rejected by men, we should expect that for ourselves. Because in a similar way, we are rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. Don't ever forget that. You're rejected by men, but we're choice and precious in the sight of God. That meant he chose us with great care and highly cherishes and dearly loves who we are. Verse 5, the second aspect. Is this too long? (laughs) The second aspect is in verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's a lot there. When someone's converted, they have two basic instincts. To come to Christ and learn his word, and to come to a church. Someone said, what do I do after I'm saved? Well, you're going to have to start coming to church and learning the Bible. That's it? Oh yeah, well, you'll struggle with that. That's the basic instinct. If someone is not driven to come to church and learn the Bible, they don't know God. It's as clear as that. You also as living stones. So there's the comparison here because we're touched by him. We ourselves are living stones. Now alive as a result of having come to him. We now enter the church to be part of God's building of that local church. So it's not just I'm converted. I come to him and I show up at church. It means to be assimilated in the church in the building project of what God is creating, a spiritual temple. There's no such thing as coming to Christ and not being built in to a local church. Now, contrary to how you might see, that's not like a lot of people practice that. You go go to church, but hey, I'll come to Christ, but I'm not going to be built into this church with these people here. I don't even like them. (laughs) So what's happened today is the vision has been lost for the church as being built up as a spiritual temple. This is not the vision of the church in America. Come to church as a cultural institution, Celebrate the fact that you're a religious person. Honor Christ with your lips, not with your heart, and go on and live your own life. That's not his will. You're not in the will of God. See, we enter the church by coming to Christ as Lord. We don't come to Christ by entering the church, and that being an end in itself. Now I'm going to church. I'm okay. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Now notice the present passive indicative here in the verb, which most of you understand. An ongoing process is in view, which takes time, but it doesn't just take time for no reason. 
It takes time because we are so broken, corrupted by sin. It's a transforming process that's going to take some time. I've had to look at some of you for over 30 years. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it's a process. <laughs> the same face, the same thing. So we put up with each other, right? Yeah, I recognize you, you're a sinner. <laughs> so it's time, but look what happens over that process. Look at the kind of people we've become as a church. Individually, we still have all our flaws, deep ones, and yet together we're perfect. When we're together, outsiders look at us, we're perfect. The Shekinah dwells among us. The glory of God is manifested every time we're together and they see us. All the weaknesses are blocked by other strengths, etc. And so this is a collective journey. And it involves being built up. So it's a, it's a present, passive, it's a process, but it's also a question of cooperating with what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. To cooperate with God, that's the daily thing we go through. We get up, we have time with God, we see the issues in our own life. That's part of being built up. So if we're committed to that process, we're going to cooperate with God. If not, we're constantly engaged in activity that's sabotaging that process. So we exhort one another daily that none of us be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. So if you talk to someone in the morning, how are you doing? Fine. I go, uh-oh. <laughs> Can't be doing that great. You probably haven't had your quiet time. If you think you're fine, because you're not fine. But it only takes a little bit to get fine. So don't worry. Are you grateful for the process? Yeah. And who you've become? Has God let us down? Hasn't he been with us? Transformed us? Into a living temple. Into a spiritual temple. Living stones coming, being built up, shaped, fitted, and perfected in place at the building site. You can't be built into a church if you don't show up. At the building site. I love St. Augustine's way of defining the church in a similar way. Fashioned by faith, established by hope, and cemented together by love into a living temple, a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Now, a living temple, what's in view is not a material building, but one that is living. The material temple is church where you go, and it has a building, and you go through certain rituals. That's not what's in view. A living temple, alive with Christ as living stones, we become the very dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of the living God. His Shekinah is among us, like it was in the Old Testament temple when God was visiting his people. So that's what they notice. They don't like us. There's something they see. It's an aroma under death to those who reject him, an aroma to life to those who accept him. For a holy priesthood, 
Now, you remember the Old Testament on the holy priesthood. It wasn't a bunch of individual priests doing their own thing, except in the period of the judges. But the Pentateuch design was a community of priests working together under the one high priest. So when it says priesthood, it's not talking about people on their own doing their own thing. It talks about us fitted together, working together, cooperating together as a priesthood to serve the high priest. So another collective communal word is being stressed here. All the material stuff we have there in the Old Testament was always just a foreshadow of what was to come. Just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's not real. It's much more real. How dead is it a material temple with rituals without living stones? Nothing's more dead than that. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, you remember the Levitical system. You had basically five offerings. Uh, and these were like done at the same time in different combinations. You have the burnt offering. The burnt offering is when you bring to demonstrate the fullness of your dedication to God. So that's the sacrifice of commitment. I want there to be no mistake about it. I may bring a sin offering, but I'm also fully dedicated to you. And then you have the grain and peace offerings that were not of an animal, but a meal that you celebrated with others in a spirit of thanksgiving. So this is quite an event. You could bring these sacrifices in any combination. Then you had the sin and guilt offerings. The sin offering was for those serious sins before God that have broken your relationship. And the guilt offerings are for your sins against your brother which were always accompanied by some form of restitution. To offer spiritual sacrifices well-pleasing to God. This is the whole purpose of the church. You remember our discussion on moral freedom. Obviously, we're not free from our environment, etc. And as a result of sin... We're not truly free because we can only choose to sin. We still get to do exactly what we want, so in that sense, it's free. The Christian has a new possibility. He can now choose to please God. That's his one act of moral freedom. The unbeliever gets to do what he wants, but he always chooses to go against God. He's in bondage to that. But we can act in a way that pleases God. That should be always be your focus here. Father, can I please you? That focuses it. So you have these sacrifices that are acceptable to him because the state of our hearts. We go to him, we love him, and our sacrifices, whatever we're engaged in, honors him. Now in verses 6 through 8, you have the scriptural support. For this is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. This scriptural support has a chain of three messianic references, one from the Psalms, two from Isaiah, revolving around the word stone. And you can see here, lithos, it's all in all three quotations. These verses have been quoted in other parts of the New Testament, part of Peter's first sermon in Acts 4 through 11, part of Paul finishing up his nature of the Jews in Romans 9 through 11, 9.33, he talks about, you know, same passage. Jesus himself in all three gospels used this passage, the stone which the builders rejected, and all in the context of judgment, all on the basis of each person's response to Christ. So the judgment is related to our response to Christ. And he who believes in him, this is the positive side, will not be disappointed. Just as in Israel God laid a chief cornerstone, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, so for the remnant to believe they would not be disappointed. So this is God's way. It's all Christ. That's why we call ourselves Christians. And those who believe in him will not be disappointed. Disappointed is interesting because it's uh, in a lot of places in Scripture, in the Psalms. They can translate it disappointed or ashamed. And this Greek word is very clear about shame. So those who believe in him will not undergo an intense shame or a low hanging of the head when we come into the face of judgment or even before him now. It's interesting, the Hebrew word from which it's translated, we will not need to flee in terror nor be disturbed or anxious when the judgment comes upon us, whether it's in this life or in the one to come. This precious value then is for you who believe. This is our value. Those of us who believe, all of this is positive for us. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builder rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's precious and choice in our sight. He's not precious and choice in the sight of the unbelieving. There's a fundamental personal hatred for Jesus. If they hate him, don't be surprised if they hate you. They hate him first. They hate him. It's personal. Whether they're in churches or out of churches, there's a fundamental hatred for this choice and precious cornerstone. There's no such thing as seeker sensitive. If you don't know God, you hate him. You're not going to make it look that way. But nobody's seeker sensitive. God comes crashing into your life, and by his grace, you find yourself connected to him, forgiven with the greatest destiny anyone could ever imagine. Not precious or choice in their sight. So why I'm looking at this passage and what I want to underline here is the dynamics of God at work today in the American church. The apostles would use precedents from the Old Testament 
to give you a sense of what God's doing in the new. So these passages are quoted in how God dealt with Israel, among which there were many disbelieving and a remnant who believed. So you have a similar idea today with the church, God's people, Many who go to church who do not believe. Any mega church only has about one-fifth of the people that tithe. They're the Christians in any meaningful sense. And, and among those, they're not those who say. So the saved get assigned to working with the disbelieving, and you get more services, and you get more buildings, and you get more programs to minister to those who fundamentally hate God. <laughs> And those who love God are burning their wheels on things that are not really working. That's why some of our works will burn up at the Bema Seat. So in a similar way, let's think of the church in America today. The cornerstone, the chief and cornerstone, the choice and precious stone has been rejected. What do I mean by that? He's no longer approached as Lord. He's no longer the center of the church life. He's a figure, but he's not the center. And the churches, because they don't come to him as Lord, they are not being built up together into a holy temple that can offer sacrifices pleasing to God. It's just an external structure, a decaying, dead thing. If you bring up anything about Christ being Lord and people coming back, then you get the hatred. There's something wrong with you. We got rid of him as the chief cornerstone and we're doing quite well, thank you. The cornerstone is rejected as the center of his kingdom program and thrown outside the religious system into a field, rejected. And when God works, he brings living stones around those cornerstone that was rejected. And living temples result Speaking of God, and God works through that. But at first, it's rejected. It's thrown out of the system, but God is still at work. Living stones come around the chief cornerstone and build up an alternate program that judges the dead system. If people didn't think it was true, they wouldn't be threatened. Why do they harass us? I mean, we don't have any good reason. Obviously, they know or they wouldn't bother. So we expect to be rejected by men. But we also know we're choice and precious in the sight of God. There's a difference between unbelief and disbelief. Disbelief is when you're having a really hard time thinking if the Mariners can ever make it to the playoffs. <laughs> That's disbelief. I can't see it. So what we're talking about is unbelief. People know. They choose not to believe what they know to be true. There's a difference between belief in and belief that. Many people will tell you they believe that God exists. The devil does, and they tremble. So you can believe that, but unless you're believing in which is coming to him as to a living stone, it's not saving faith. 
You remember sometimes we talked about Matthew 4, the messianic temptation. So what is the dead system doing today? Well, the devil tempted the Lord with three types of temptations. The first, remember when he was hungry and the devil came to him and said, if you're hungry, change these stones to bread. Of course, some people think that the temptation was for God to stuff himself. Obviously, that's <laughs> not the point. But if you're in a position of pain, you understand hunger. If you turn all these stones to bread, you'd be able to satisfy the need among the people and be relevant. But the Lord said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then he came up with another temptation. Throw yourself off the edge of the temple over the valley, which is like thousand feet. And scripture says the angels will care for you. You won't even strike your foot upon a stone. If you were this kind of celebrity, you could make something happen. So that's the second thing the church does. The first part of the church is trying to be relevant and ignore the spiritual needs that people really have. So you let them live, you help them live another eight years, and then they die and go into a crisis <laughs> eternity. And then you have celebrity. All you have to do is turn on the TV. Bob Jones Bible Church. See, Mike Sparrow Bible Church, you know. How sick does that sound? <laughs> and then the third was, all right, Lord, I'm getting serious. The devil says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. If you have that power, can't you better fulfill the mission that your father has given? Of course, he has all the kingdoms of the world and will one day be restored to that position. So you have relevance, celebrity, political power, and the church is divided in all of those energies and has turned its back on the word and on Christ as Lord, and it's dead. It's going to be judged, but hopefully we don't shrink away in shame and have no terror or anxiety when we face it because we are choice and precious in his sight. A stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. So we talked about the idea of this rejection. We've seen the word earlier. Something that met the test but was rejected anyway. Just not seen as useful for their own purposes. And these are the builders. The builders rejected it. The ones who were supposed to build it rejected the chief cornerstone. So they came up with a system that was totally devoid of God, even though it had all the marks of being extremely religious. They rejected that stone because it wasn't useful for their religious purpose. You see how that works? And they're responsible for that. You don't think God is going to wink his eye at those in positions of authority that lead their people astray, do you? So you're a builder called of God and you reject the chief cornerstone because then you're going to get more people or who knows, whatever else thing you'll get. The rejection, as Jesus warned, 
in this time, even those of your own household will become your strongest enemies. How many of us have been betrayed by that? So it's real. Now, we have a decision to make. We could try to back off, having Christ as our cornerstone, and probably won't be harassed anymore. We'll be commended for getting in touch with the world's program of what church should do. You guys want to do that? (laughs) So if you're moving forward, you're going to be rejected by men with all of their ploys to harass you. But we're choice and precious in the sight of God, so there's nothing to fear. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To stumble is to trip or fall while coming upon an obstacle unexpectedly. Rock of offense here, the word is scandal or stumbling block. In other words, what we're doing, what Christ did, would be considered scandalous. So when it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, it's talking about that chief cornerstone. They stumble over Christ as Lord. And the rock of offense is they regard what we do as scandalous, a public disgrace, shameful, and personally offensive. Get used to that. It offends them personally. It's shameful. It's disgraceful. Now, of course, they know better. That's why they don't accuse you of what you're really doing. Blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. So if they accuse you of being a Christian, that's not falsely, is it? For great is your reward in heaven. For so they treated the prophets who were before you. That's a pretty good company. And then it has the final explanation of why they stumble. Why do they stumble? Because they're disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word. It's an interesting word, I think you know it. Apetho. It means unpersuadable. It's an overt determination to refuse to be persuaded of what they know to be true. They're no longer open to argument or reason. Dialogue is over. I don't want to talk about it. Because I know it's true. And I don't want to deal with that right now. To refuse to let that living word into their hearts to let it have its intended effect. Okay? You understand what that's like, right? Bad. No longer open to reason and argument, won't even allow themselves to reconsider. So they're beyond argument. You know how that goes. You've had that. And to this doom, they were also appointed. They're left to their own way. And the ultimate consequences that have been appointed, which is simply the outcome of their choices. He lets them go their own way. And even like with Pharaoh's hardening, the person wants to go their own way, but sometimes they lack the strength. God will even give that to them to pursue their own ends. And then, for those who go their own way, there's an appointed end. And it will happen. People go into the obituaries, 
every Sunday, the thing that strikes you is, man, they weren't expecting this. But one day, there will be a moment with such awful finality that it can't be reversed. They have to convince themselves when we turn from God that somehow things are going to be okay. And if I try not to think about it, maybe that appointed end will never come. And if you know them, you can just see them going downhill. Oh my gosh, I don't want to see that picture. Look what happened to that person who turned from God and thought it would be okay. Swept away in the day of judgment. The Lord's invitation, come out from them and be separate. The empty system, come out from it and be separate, says the Lord, and you will be sons and daughters to me. That's the challenge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for encouraging our hearts and being so very present with us and for your plan to use us. We know we have this treasure in the earthen vessels, but we accept that because we want the glory to be of you and not of ourselves. Let us willingly carry about in our body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In his name, amen. Built up? Oh, we have the Lord's Supper. I'm sorry. I'm out of shape. When's the last time we've shared it? Yeah. Oh, okay. But not with me. Is that okay? Yeah. I do it. The Lord said, as, as often as you do this, there's no strict command of how often you do it or where you do it. But as often as you do it, you're reminded that one day he's going to come to us. We, we eat his, the bread, which symbolizes his body, the wine, which symbolizes his blood. And then we declare our commitment to him until the day he comes. So it's a celebration. We're really grateful for the past and what he's done. We fellowship in the present and we have the future to eat it again with him when we get there. It's past that. The night he was betrayed to his disciples, he said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he took a cup and he said, drink. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Father, again, thank you for being here. In Jesus' name.